This is Restless. Sort of. As part of the book club that we've been releasing on Fridays, we've been working through a book called Covenants Made Simple by Jaunty Rhodes. You may recognize that name, even if you haven't been tuning into the book club, because we also recently gave out another book called Reformed Worship by Jaunty as well. So as part of the book club, we reached out to Jaunty and he was willing to do an interview with us. You're going to get to hear me and Chase and Andrew sitting down with Jaunty. We got to chat together about the book and I think that you'll find it really interesting. For the next couple of weeks, we'll probably have some different content like this releasing as uh, Matt and his family have just welcomed a new baby. So please pray for them and uh, be looking for some content that's maybe a little out of the ordinary, but not so distant from things that we always talk about here. With that, here is our interview with Jaunty Rhodes. Hey guys, uh, welcome back to the book club. Uh, this is a kind of special episode. It's a little different because Chase and Andrew and I are not sitting in a coffee shop. Uh, instead, we are uh, in our own homes, uh, but that's because we get to uh, interview the author of the book that we've been reading. We've been reading Covenants Made Simple by Jaunty Rhodes. And so, um, Jaunty, would you, uh, you know, just say hi, um, you know, and uh, maybe give a quick introduction. And then because this is the first time we're on video, I'm actually going to have Chase and Andrew introduce themselves as well. But uh, why don't you go first, Jaunty? Thanks. Yeah, so good to be with you guys. Yeah, my name's uh, John T. Rhodes. I'm a pastor of Presbyterian Church in England, which actually is a very, that's a very strange thing. I think when I when I first came into Presbyterian ministry, I think we were the fourth English Presbyterian Church, wow. something like that. So we're, we're absolutely a tiny minority over here. Uh, married to Georgina, we've got five kids, and I've spent the last, well, 15 or so years church planting. So two, two church plants, and I'm now in a, a city called Leeds in the north of England, uh, which is it's big for a UK city, probably about three quarters of a million. Uh, we planted about six years ago, probably about 11 of us, and have slowly, slowly grown us since then. Very cool. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'm going to uh, have some questions, even just about what you just said. But uh, first, Chase, Andrew, why don't you introduce yourselves? Yeah, good morning uh, or good afternoon to you, Jonathan. Uh, hi, my name is Chase Retort. Yeah, I'm uh, one of the regulars here on the Pastor Michael's Book Club. Uh, I serve as a director of youth ministry at an evangelical free church called Bethany in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and I'm also currently a student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm Andrew, uh, again, one of the regulars on the book club. Um, I'm currently uh, pursuing undergraduate degree at Boyce College in Biblical and Theological Studies, and I uh, just became a member of Pastor Michael's church this last week. Which everybody should eventually, but yeah, that's the that's the goal is to get the whole across area in the <laughs> Christ covenant. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Jonty, it's such a, a pleasure to be able to speak with you. Um, really appreciate you giving us uh, this time. Um, so we've spent the last several months um, going very kind of slowly, uh, chapter by chapter, through your book, um, and so it's been uh, just a you know, a, a really enjoyable process for us. It's brought up a lot of, of good discussion. Um, now, you are an author of several different books um, at this point. I believe this was your first book. Is that right? Your first? 
published yes, book? Or? That's right. Yeah, it was. So uh, what? why this book, I guess, is uh, what I want to ask. What is it that, that brought um, this, this idea to the front of your mind as something that you wanted to get published? Yeah, in many ways, it comes out of some of the context that we were chatting about even before uh, we started recording. So back in about 2010, uh, I did a little church plant in a city called Derby. There were, I think, eight of us when we started. And I'd, I'd been converted into an evangelical, um, through evangelical parachurch ministries, really, and served for a while in, in Anglican churches, um, you know, good gospel-believing, Bible-teaching Anglican churches. But I knew I wasn't an Anglican. And so in, in 2010, we, we planted this church, Christchurch Derby, just, just eight of us. And I, I, by that stage, I sort of knew I was a Presbyterian, but didn't know if there was anyone else to be Presbyterian with in England, because it's so rare. So um, we, we started teaching, or I started teaching uh, covenant theology in our midweek class, kind of like a Sunday school class, I suppose. We, we did it midweek, um, really because it had, I, I'd become reformed in a kind of broad sense soteriology, believed in the doctrines of grace, but it, 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 through reading and various classes, it sort of came to me that I'd never really been taught much covenant theology, and yet that seemed to be the lifeblood of most of our reformed forefathers, frankly, whether they're Presbyterian or Congregationalist or Baptist or, or whatever. Um, so I wanted to do some teaching on it, uh, did that midweek. It was new to most of the people in the church. I just couldn't find a book that was entry level for one of a better word something that would would be um something you give someone in the congregation and expect them to read so there's, there's all sorts of great puritan works out there there's some modern stuff that was i just felt was a bit heavy for people who yeah. are new to it so the hope for the book was really that it would just become a kind of a, an entry um into this whole world of covenant theology that was the lifeblood of our our predecessors yeah, that's great. Um, it really, it really comes across that way. Actually, um, I, like you're saying, uh, you can, you know, maybe in, uh, you know, in certain circles, in the young, restless, and reformed, or you know, some cage Calvinists, you know, plopping a, a big, uh, long treatise on uh, the covenants, is something that you would do. Uh, but to actually get people to read it to learn it, to know it, uh, when that would be so foreign, you know, when the language seems foreign and it's, you know, uh, far removed from your experience and, and how you even just think the categories that you have, um, that you use to think about things. Um, and that, that makes a ton of sense. And, uh, so Andrew Chase, do you have any, uh, questions you want to ask as we get started? Yeah, this might be kind of unrelated, but, uh, we all are familiar with Scotland being the birthplace of Presbyterianism. Why is there such a disparity between Scotland and England? Getting an Englishman to talk about Scotland is very dangerous ground, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I need to be very careful. I should I should know that. I spent I spent a month with the Royal Marines, so I should I should know that. Oh, did you? Yeah, well, yeah, we should chat yeah, about yeah, that yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, as you probably know, the, the Westminster Confession was written in England by basically English ministers with some help from the Scots as, uh, as sort of um, outside adjudicators. But, I mean, honestly, since more or, more or less 20 years after that, so the, the king came back, they, they restored Charles II to the throne. Um, m most Presbyterian ministers lost their living. Um, you had to become an Anglican again. Uh, and to be honest, for the last 400 years, the, the story of Presbyterianism in England um, because it was a distinct kingdom from Scotland, 
although we had one monarch confusingly, but they were distinct kingdoms for a good while. Um, the established church in Scotland, the state church, became Presbyterian because it had been already, whereas the state church in England reverted very quickly to being um, the Church of England, the Anglican Church. And so all you know, the Presbyterians were deprived of their livings, or they went to the US, or they went um, to the continent or Scotland. And occasionally there's been a you know an attempt to get it going again, usually by Scots coming south. But um, it really hasn't flourished for many years at all since, well, more or less since the 17th century. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're, we're getting going again. The denomination I'm part of is called the International Presbyterian Church, the IPC. And we've, you know, we've grown even just in the last 10 years from four or five churches to 20-odd in the UK and a few on the continent. Um, but it's, uh, it's slow growth. We feel like we're restarting not just new congregations, but a whole way of doing, doing church. Yeah. yeah. Jackie, I've got a couple of questions for you on the book particularly. One, it's clear in the book that you use a couple of strategic literary devices um, to give really simple handholds. I guess my question is, in terms of audience, did you have in mind like um, people unfamiliar entirely with covenant theology, or who is the book really written for and for? Yeah, so because it emerged in the church context, uh, the, the, the folk I was teaching the stuff to to begin with would have been largely evangelical, you know, like Bible honoring, gospel believing, um, yeah, just good evangelical folk, but who wouldn't have come largely, who wouldn't have come from any kind of reform backgrounds um, whatsoever. So I suppose by default that became the kind of audience for the book. When you try and turn what were essentially seminars into a book, and you start doing the extra reading, inevitably your mind starts going to all the kind of intramural debates and you have to mm. tighten some of the screws and you're trying to make decisions about what to what debates to get into and what not and you, you might have picked up as you go through there are obviously some areas of covenant theology that are just more debated than others um but i suppose i had in mind uh a, 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 not a not a scholar but a, a normal christian if i can use that that phrase yeah who was evangelical but new to the idea of yeah, I mean, it was super helpful to me as somebody who had really very, very limited experience studying covenant theology. So I, I appreciated that dearly. The only book I had read previously on the topic was O. Palmer Robertson's The Christ of the Covenants. And I'm curious, Jaunty, is that a book that you would commend? Do you, do you appreciate Robertson's take? And then are there any other uh, resources or books in addition to your own that you would recommend on the topic for an introduction to uh, covenant theology? Yeah, so Palmer Robertson was the one that um, I knew best, at least in terms of modern stuff, before uh, before writing. And yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, the kind of modern, um, probably 30 years old now, isn't it? But modern classic, as it were, on it. Um, I, I, I felt it was a, a level up from where at least my folk were, more Hebrew, transliterated. Um, and there's the odd place where I might go in a slightly different direction, slightly different takes on some things. But but. Fundamentally, yeah, I, I hope it's in the same vein as, as Palmer Robertson's work. Um, as for entry-level stuff, that you know, you write things, and then you, at the time, I, I read quite a lot ten years ago when it was written, and then slightly forget about everything. So, <laughs> probably not the best recommendations. <laughs> um, it, I mean, there's more. I, I'm not good anymore on introductions. Basically, I've stopped reading introductions to cover theology. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> but um. What I hope it, the book might do is get people onto some of the kind of next, I suppose, next steps. Um, and I, in terms, in terms of some of the older guys um, that I've read that I found helpful, 
um, John Ball, I think it's called a treatise on the covenant of grace. He's a Puritan. He was the guy who was more or less the, the guru at the Westminster Assembly, um, but it's actually quite readable. So it's a, it's a funny old reprint, but it's actually quite readable for, a, for an old guy. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm afraid for, for modern, modern stuff. Ask Pastor Michael. <laughs> and I would recommend Jockey Rhodes, Covenants Made Simple. Uh, <laughs> So let's get, let's get into the, the content of the book a little bit. Um, could we start at one of uh, our uh, listeners asked this question, and I thought it was a good way to maybe get into the, the content of the book. Um, he asked how you would give uh, a 30-second elevator pitch for covenant theology. So this came from Ben. Um, you know, if you had to just give a quick 30-second presentation, how would you explain it? I think I begin by saying that Dick, if I'm talking to a Christian, we, we always talk about our relationship with God. And we say to non-Christians, you can have a relationship with God. We ask how each other's relationship with God is going. But that word relationship, relationship with God, the phrase, isn't in Scripture. And the reason it's not in Scripture is that Scripture's word for our relationship with God is the covenant. So studying covenant theology isn't some sort of niche academic discipline. It's not a funny corner of the Bible. It is really the, the, the shape of our relationship um, with with our Lord, between God and his people. And so getting into covenant theology is not a form distinctive particularly, or it shouldn't be. Uh, it is it is the story of God's relationship with his people and the shape of that relationship today. Uh, Jonti, I just thought, what, do you think most people in the church are lacking a proper understanding of covenants? And if so, how does that affect our view of God? if we're lacking in a proper understanding of covenant? I mean, it's an interesting question. I'm nervous making those sort of big picture pronouncements, particularly <laughs> about Wisconsin. But um, <laughs> I mean, clearly Chase is, but uh, other than that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I love this. I love this so much. It's too early for this. That was a very cheap shot. Um, <laughs> I told, Jody, I told uh, both Chase and Andrew when, when we first started, doing this the very first time we met and recorded it and talked about a little bit about your book i said listen my you know the the long-term kind of story arc of this part of the podcast that you guys aren't even aware of yet is that uh, by the second or third season you become presbyterian and you know uh pedo baptist and so uh so, so cheap shots are allowed here uh, as long as they are they are uh, at chase's expense we'll we'll we'll, we'll allow them <laughs> if it if it cheers chase up um spurgeon not a, not a famous peter baptist or presbyterian um spurgeon said something like um he who masters the difference between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace will become a master of theology and that almost all other errors come from confusing those two things so okay. I, yeah, it, it was a cheap shot but um, <laughs> <laughs> now we'll take that reputable resource thank you <laughs> um I, I mean over here certainly so in the uk or at least in england sorry to be more specific um co covenant theology just just hasn't really been been taught that much in many many circles in evangelical circles i mean um and in our you know we're a much smaller weaker church than in the us but even in our our sort of slightly stronger more more biblically robust circles um we had trouble a few years back some of the federal vision stuff i don't know if you guys have come across that but it it drifted over the, the waters and even leaving aside the particular debates about that movement, it, it just meant that covenant 
because federal is just a Latin word for covenant at the end of the day. It just meant that covenant almost became a dirty word. So the sort of baby was chucked out with the bathwater. Um, so I, I suspect that's the same in, in lots of circles. Um, as for the what, what it does, I mean, if, if, you, if you looked at it more positively, um, I can't remember. It's a long time since I've read the book. And in fact, I've never read the American version of the book that I can see next to you, uh, Pastor Michael. <laughs> so um, there are some... Um, Oh, that's the new edition. Yeah. In England, yes. it's got a different title and a slightly different intro. But um, I can't remember if this is in here or not. But Paca, when I, when I lecture on, on Covenant, Paca says that um, if you want to rightly understand the nature of scripture, the nature of the gospel and how God works, you need to understand those three things within a covenantal frame. Um, and that's a huge claim. That, you know, the way this Bible fits together, the story of scripture, the shape of the gospel and how God relates to us. And even just how God himself acts, you need to look at those things through a covenantal frame. If Packer's right, then the flip side is also true. If we get those things wrong, it's gonna, it's probably going to have effects about how we teach scripture, if we're, if we're preaching, certainly how we understand it. Um, and really, the, just the shape of our, our relationship to, to, to God. Yeah, one of the things that we've talked about while reading through the book and, and um, you know, worked through a lot is how important covenant theology is for tying the whole of Scripture together, right? It tie, I mean, it ties all of our faith together. Um, it gives you uh, that category to hold on to when you are reading about the kings of Israel and when you're reading about, you know, Abraham. When, you're, when you are reading the Old Testament, um, you know, it's very common for... Uh, people today, uh, at least in, you know, kind of broad evangelical circles, um, to maybe feel a little bit like, well, this is all so distant from me. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, Andrew's uh, favorite whipping boy on the podcast is uh, one Andy Stanley uh, for saying <laughs> that we should unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Uh, and and this just to, to understand covenant, actually, that is the way that you enter into any of those stories, and you can actually see how they directly connect uh, to how God continues to be at work, um, to how how He is at work in you, right? The the way that the covenant of grace uh, has unfolded through history, and so uh, it gives you that that easier handhold, right? It gives you that category of thought. Um, it gives, in a sense, it becomes the doorway through which you have to enter into to really tie all of Scripture together. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is the, um, the chain that links Genesis to Revelation. So can we, let's, let's try to, for those who are listening, you know, especially if they're, you know, maybe newer to this or, or it's not so familiar, can we walk through some of those chain links? Would you be able to, you know, just in somewhat brief form, um, if just kind of trace the, the covenantal story through scripture? Sure. I mean, you can start in the garden, I think. Um, so before the fall, although the word covenant isn't used, that the structure of the relationship between God and, and Adam, um, I think, is, is covenantal. Uh, and there, that, I mean, that classically would be called, the most common name for it is the, the covenant of works, sometimes called the covenant of life, covenant of nature. Whatever you call it, in a sense, doesn't matter too much. But you see this, um, this relationship laid out, and it's, covenant works implies it is fundamentally one of of work so god tells adam um here here's all these blessings here's a wonderful world eat 
work, enjoy. He has a wife to enjoy. Um, do not eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the, the one condition, as it were, in the, the relationship is that they don't, don't take that, that fruit. Um, so that's not the gospel. There's no mention of forgiveness or grace or mercy. But Adam is meant to walk in righteousness and is able to. You know, he's not born sinful. He's not made sinful. He, as it were, is able both to sin or to, to obey. And we know what happens. But that, that, that first relationship is, is, I think, a covenantal one. We can come back if you want in more detail as to why I think it's right to call it a covenant. Clearly it goes wrong. And really, from the fall onwards, classic covenant theology has spoken about one covenant of grace. I suppose another way of saying one gospel. But I think it begins in Genesis 3, just with, with God speaking to Adam and Eve, um, the, the promise of someone who will come and crush the serpent's head, the clothing with the, the skin of an animal rather than the, uh, the leaves that they try to cover themselves with uh, for their own self-justification. But I, I, classically, Abraham would be the, the, the obvious place to, to start. Um, God comes and makes a covenant with Abraham. And what is required of him, in a verse that Paul quotes endlessly in the New Testament, and Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. So if, if we, for the sake of time, skip over Adam, Noah and arrive at Abraham, then you see with Abraham the, 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 the beginnings of the covenant of, of grace. And you see that the blessings promise. So covenants, this relationship um, promises blessings for those who keep the covenant. For Abraham, many offspring, um, the land and God's presence. I will be your God. I'll be your shield, your great reward. You see the condition, if I can use that word carefully, which is belief. So Abraham's not working, uh, he's not earning, but he's just trusting God's promise. And you, you, you do see the threat too, the curse. Um, covenants um, come with curses as well as blessings if you break them. And Abraham is, is warned that if he or his descendants walk away from the Lord, they'll be cut off. So that, that promise of blessing, fundamentally, I will be your God, the, the condition, and again, I'm nervous of the word condition, but if you understand it rightly, of faith, and then the, the threat of being cut off becomes a pattern for the rest of Scripture. So that the next era would be the, the, um, the next big step forward, at least, would be the Mosaic era. So the Israelites rescued, come to Sinai, and again, another covenant is formed, the explicit language of a, a covenant ceremony at Mount Sinai. Um, and I would argue it's the same structure. Um, it's It's... The Israelites are called, first of all, to believe, um, then, of course, to obey, just as we all are. But the, the, the obedience is not the condition, I don't think, even at Sinai. It's still faith. Um, the cutting off becomes more dramatic. Um, so people are cut off from life. Or, um, the threat of the whole Israelite people is that if they're unfaithful, they'll be cut off from the land, thrown out, as eventually happens in the exile. Um, and the blessings there again, God, God is even closer. He's there in the tabernacle now. He's dwelling with them in a more um, visible way, we might say, than he was with Abraham. Um, the land is, is entered into. There's not just a promise, but a, an actual entry into the land. Um, and the, the people have grown. So it's the same promises, people, presence, um, and the place to live that, that were promised to Abraham, just now fleshed out more and more with, with the, the Mosaic Covenant. Um, I mean, on you might go pick up David. David is, is added in um, uh, a few centuries later as the, the king representing the people. Um, and so you, you sort of begin to see this principle that 
rather than God dealing with millions of individuals just one on one, it's as it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. So at times in, in the books of Kings, you'll see that because of the sins of Manasseh, the people go into exile. Um, so you get this idea of coming back of a representative, like Adam, in fact, one man, one king being able to represent us. And of course, that sets you up for the, for the New Testament. When we come to the New, New Testament, it's just another word for covenant, isn't it? We come to the Lord Jesus um, just before his birth. His uncle Zechariah sings that God has been faithful to the covenant um, promised to Abraham. So he understands this coming of Jesus as a covenantal event. At the Last Supper, Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. So it's the bringing in of the new covenant. And again, the blessings are the same, aren't they? Um, there are nuances of the new covenant, which um, particularly Baptists and Peter Baptists might disagree on some of the kind of fine tuning. But fundamentally, the promise is the same. I'll be your God. The condition is the same. Believe, believe this good news. Um, and the, the blessings are there. God promises us ultimate obviously is the new heavens and new earth but promises the blessings of a wonderful place to live um part of a great multitude the church uh, with god present to dwell with us to, to bless us um all under the rule of, uh, of our, our king in christ and of course that the curse is there as well the bible ends with the the, the final cutting off um, the final judgment um, that, that falls when christ returns so all the way through there's that theme the, the, the call on god's people is to trust the blessings of his presence, a place to dwell with him uh, and being part of his people and thread of cutting off. Awesome. Yeah, it's so good. And even as you're saying it, I'm just reminded about how once you, you know, once you go through this door again of, you know, of understanding covenant, um, what you find is that on almost every page of scripture, this comes out. You don't always get the word like you said, right? You don't always, it's maybe not always as explicitly spelled out as it is in Genesis 17, um, but it is still there, right? That uh, these promises and these, you know, signs of, of, of the covenant relationship to God and, and, and God's promises, I and mean, it's just it everywhere. And all of a sudden, I, I, what it does is it starts to illuminate uh, so much of uh, both of scripture, but then also of uh, what that means as far as how God sees you, right? If, if you have trusted in Christ, what does that mean for you and and uh, your relationship to him? And it all starts to uh, kind of fill out, so to speak. So um, yeah, thank you for doing that. And I'll, you know, just to put in a plug for the book, if you, if you haven't gotten it and you haven't been reading along with us, um, you can go into much greater detail uh, than Jonty just did in his book by reading through it. So um, there will be a link uh, when we uh, put this out, there will be a link to that book, um, to the the uh, uh, Amazon page for the book, uh, but highly recommend you go out and, and get this one. Um, and, uh, you know, since I'm already recommending it, let me just, you know, recommend a little bit more uh, and then we'll have some more questions. But, uh, you know, if you are somebody that, you know, you've been convinced, Right. You're you're at the point where you say, I'm like I'm in when it comes to covenant theology. You know, maybe you are um, in a position where you know a lot of people who don't understand what you're talking about and you want to explain it to them. Uh, I have found uh, and, you know, both in, in doing this, this book club, but also in other situations 
as well as now having recommended this and seen this at work, um, that reading through this book with somebody else who's maybe trying to understand these things more or as you're trying to explain it to them, a super helpful resource for you, right? It's super helpful to be able to sit down and read through this. It, it um, helps look at a bunch of the different questions. It, uh, you know, it is not in old Puritan language. Um, it's, it's very understandable. So definitely, definitely highly recommend checking that out if you want to go deeper into anything that Jaunty was just talking about. Uh, so, Jaunty, uh, you know, we don't want to take too much of your time, uh, but I do have a handful of questions from our patrons on the podcast. And uh, so if you're OK, I'd love to ask you a few of those. Sure. So one we got, um, this is uh, from uh, Ben. Uh, he asked um, specifically uh, about being in a context so where we are here in Wisconsin, uh, at least in the broad evangelical world dispensationalism is really kind of the air that everybody breathes. It's just assumed. Most people might not even know exactly, you know, if they are dispensationalists, but they are just because of, you know, osmosis and, and <laughs> growing up with it. And it's just everywhere. Right. Um, so how would you uh, maybe begin? He asked uh, a conversation with someone, especially when they first learned that you don't, you're not a dispensationalist because that can be kind of shocking and difficult for some people. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, this is where I probably ought to sort of tap out and, and let you guys take over because in England that, that is um, far less the case. So dispensationalism is not, not over here, but it, it, it's, I get the impression nowhere near the size or the dominance that it, that it is in these portions of the U S yeah. uh, as far as I can tell. So it's, it's, it'd be very rare to meet in England someone who identifies as a dispensationalist. Um, having said which, it you know, it does it is sort of in the atmosphere a little bit. Um, I, I I find that with, with folk who are new to covenant theology, rather than getting into the weeds too quickly, one of the places I tend to go is this whole question of how people in the Old Testament um, uh, were saved. You know, what what is the, the gospel, as it were, in the Old Testament? And to be able to go to Romans 3 and 4 or Galatians 3 and 4 and look at how Paul uses Abraham yes. um, as the paradigm for uh, not just for, for Jews, <laughs> but for Christians. This is what we should be doing, walking in the footsteps of our father Abraham, who believed and was justified, credited yeah. him as righteousness. And so what if, if you can sort of press into that a little bit and start to see that, that fundamentally salvation has always been by grace through faith you start to see that if you can get across the same gospel in the old and new testament you just begin to see that there might also be continuity in other things as well um now if, if you get on some of the more specifics i i think two, two passages that are quite helpful on the nature of the church so th there are a thousand shades of dispensationalism nowadays and there's progressive dispensationalists and progressive covenantalists and you know some of them are way more sophisticated than others, but very crudely, typically a kind of classic dispensationalist would have um, promises for, for Israel, God's people, the Old Testament that are distinct and run parallel to God's promises to the, the church. And so trying to show that the two, it's not that you've got Old Testament church, New Testament church, and they're, they're different sort of entities. Um, you go to Hebrews 3, um, Moses being a servant in the house, Jesus being master over the house, and then 
whoever wrote Hebrews goes on to say, and you are God's house if you, if you believe. Point being, there's only one house. It's not that Moses built one house, then Jesus turned up and built another house. There's only one house. Uh, and we're all part of the same house. Or obviously the, the olive tree in, in Romans. We're grafted in. It's not that there are two trees. There's one tree. Uh, and so I think those sort of passages are helpful for showing that actually we are, the, the Israelites are our forefathers. Yeah, it's super helpful. Super helpful. Um, and, you know, in the same vein, Ben was asking about uh, people who might challenge, you know, covenant theology as being replacement theology. And I think you actually just in, in a lot of ways answered that. And, and um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, next um, we had Elijah uh, who asked why the book has a different title in the UK. So you did mention that. Uh, and so he was wondering about that. Yeah. So what uh, one of the things with publishing is that as an author, or at least as a, as a sort of uh, a lowly author, maybe maybe it's different if you're Tim Keller or John Piper, but you don't get the final say on title or cover right. or endorsements or things like that. So in the UK, it was called Raiding the Lost Ark, published with a different publisher. Um, I I think when PNR got hold of it, they either they either thought it needed made made making more simple for Americans, you know, covenants made simple, just sort of tone it down for the US, or um, although the references would go all over the place. So yeah, I, it, it is just that it was the, the rights for it in the US were picked up by PNR, who um, decided to go a different direction. But um, n- neither ultimately are my fault, I'll say. <laughs> yeah, when I did. I did tell him. I'm pretty sure he'd just say the publisher. <laughs> you know, yeah, pretty yeah. Sure. When Elijah put that in the chat, I couldn't believe. I was like, Jaunty is the man responsible for writing the plot of Harrison Ford's great, you know, first Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> Little known fact based on this book. So you can either read the book or watch the movie. It's yeah, yeah. what you want to do. Yeah. We'll be struggling for funding if that was the case. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Oh, man. Um, and then one more, uh, maybe a little bit snarky question. Nicholas asked, you know, why the book has endnotes instead of footnotes. <laughs> you know, the classic endnotes versus footnotes debate. Uh, all, all the publisher. Publisher. Innocent. Yeah. Innocent. Innocent. yeah. <laughs> always, uh, always the publisher. Uh, can I, I want to add one question. So, you know, at the beginning, we were talking a little bit about Presbyterianism in England and the how it's just there's just not much i mean actually you describing that sounded a lot like here in wisconsin yeah. um so the you know the kind of uh you know christian makeup of wisconsin it's a you know it's a place where there is a you know a fair amount of faith but um it is primarily um roman catholic or lutheran uh for the most part um there's a there's a fair amount of of evangelicalism in the lacrosse area there's a fair amount of especially um some larger churches uh like the one that chase is a part of uh within the evangelical free church of america um which you know has some roots in lutheranism and and so you know as far as the you know lutheran immigrant populations that move to the midwest and then you know over time this this uh you know became what it is now Um, and so so you have that but um presbyterianism at least, uh, you know, you know, historic uh, confessional Presbyterianism, right? Uh, Presbyterianism that is maybe still distinctive um, in, in its Presbyterian Reformed way uh, is really not very common. Uh, the you know when you mentioned the 
the work that you guys are doing in church planting over the last decade. Um, it, honestly, it almost sounds like it mirrors uh, similar uh, things and efforts that are going on here in Wisconsin. Uh, the other co-host that I have uh, on the Restless podcast, Matt, is uh, currently a church planter um, north of us, about an hour and a half, uh, and doing that. And actually, the Ben, who asked several of these questions, is also a church planter. And so, um, you know, we're, that is happening. I just wonder, you know, if you would um, share a little bit about your experience with uh, approaching a very, you know, like you said, non-Presbyterian world with Reformed theology, um, both both uh, covenant theology and more, how, you know, how have you done that? How has it gone? How, you know, what, uh, what does that look like for you in that context? Because I think it could be helpful for some folks listening. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the big, probably the big difference is the, we, we're not really approaching many other Christian believers. So in, in Leeds, where I am, or oh, sorry, you're, you're, we're in a county called Yorkshire. So our counties are your states, as you may know, we don't have states, we have counties. Um, Yorkshire is the biggest county in England, so the same population as Scotland. So we're quite a big county, um, kind of Texas-like. You know, we like to think we're, we should be independent and all the rest of it. But um, <laughs> church attendance is something like 0.7%. Um, and that's going once a month to any kind of church. I mean, anything. Wow. Tone that wow. down to an evangelical, even fairly broadly divine. It's something like it's either 0.2 or 0.4%. I can't remember. Um so sort of inter-Nicene, inter-denominational debates are not really on the agenda or a massive problem for us. It's, it's just reaching non-Christians. Um, ha- having said which, I, I, I think, I mean, I'm a convinced Presbyterian, I'm convinced of the Reformed understanding of Scripture. I, I do think it, the Reformed gospel has the, the resources, as it were, to deal with secularism in a way that I think some of the kind of lighter forms of evangelicalism are, are struggling with. Um, now, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole of podcast, isn't it? But um, <laughs> I, to, to have a robust view of scripture, to, to have a, a drill down as far as you can go, grace alone, understanding salvation in a world that is obsessed with, with kind of works righteousness of all sorts of different ways. Um, you know, you, you, have got, you have got good news to, to take. Um, We've seen, yeah, we, I mean, there's a denomination we, well, we may planted 15 churches or something like that in the last few years. And um, don't get me wrong, most of our churches have grown through Christian joining, moving to the area or whatever it may be. So it's not been thousands of conversions, sadly. We all want that, but the reality hasn't been that. Some conversions slowly trickle, but lots of it is, is kind of growth from. New, believe, new people to the area or, or whatever it may be and I, what I've been surprised by pleasantly by surprised by is is that actually the, the younger generation um, the most of my church are in their 20s and 30s most of the undergrads 20s 30s um, I'm in my 40s and I'm about the I think about the fifth oldest guy in the church or something like that fourth or fifth it's, it's a bit ridiculous um, I wonder even in the to bring it full circle in the young restless reform kind of era all the pressure. I went on a few church planning courses before Derby, even in the USA. Um, came to some of the Driscoll stuff and Keller and all sorts. 
and I remember coming home from a, a, a training course out there in, in Orlando, actually, with these two ring binders. In fact, they're at my feet now. I could almost lift them up. Two ring binders full of vision, um, how to plan your vision. That's different from your strategy. You need a mission statement, which is different from your value statement. And it, it, it was almost just swamping with the kind mm. of the skills you need to be a church planter. Whereas now I, you know, I do a little bit of teaching on church planting and I think, never mind Presbyterian, just being reformed more generally, so to bring Chase back in. Um, it, um, it, it, it's so, to trust the ordinary means of grace is so free. Yeah. I, fundamentally, the way I plant a church is the same way everyone else has done it for 2,000 years. Um, I don't need to be this massively radical um, cultural analyst. I, I, I do my best, but I'm not brilliant at it. Um, I, I, I can trust the means that God has always used. Uh, I don't need to, when it comes to Sunday worship, I, I don't really need to sort of think, how do I do Sunday worship in Leeds that is vastly different to how it's done in, you know, Bismarck or Pierre or Madison or, you know, wherever else. Like it, it's just, we, we worship as God has told us to. Um, yeah. And to be able to trust the ordinary means, I think, has has been a relief for me as a, a planter and a pastor. But also it's, it's the young folk have enjoyed it, I think. They're, maybe they're fed up of gimmicks. Maybe they're, I don't know, maybe the shallowness of, of the world and of some forms of evangelicalism is not, is losing its taste. But, um, you know, as we began here, I thought, like, you know, I, I want kids in the service largely. We don't really kick the kids out to go to Sunday school. Um, uh, I thought I want to sing psalms sometimes at least we're not exclusive psalmody but in england very few people sing psalms at all and i also thought we want to do we're going to do the lord's supper each week and those are the three things i thought in a, in a small church plant of a dozen or so people i thought that's gonna be really weird but actually people have really enjoyed it um god's been kind it's grown we're probably about 150 160 now um and they like those things that are they're not innovative are they they're <laughs> singing right. psalms or you know teaching the kids in the service or lord's supper you know but they are the means that God's given, and I think we, it's, a, it's a massive relief just better trust them and go for it. Great. Okay. Praise God. I, I've got one final question on my end for you, Mr. Rhodes. So, um, yeah, the school that I'm attending right now, part of the SBC or uh, Southern Baptist, is a convention or whatever, the, the school. Um, and I would guess most of the professors, including the one teaching church governance for me next semester, would subscribe to something close to progressive covenantalism. In fact, I think. Wellam at uh, SPTS is one of the guys who kind of pioneered that for the most part. So yeah. uh, I'll actually be studying uh, a, a book surveying, um, you know, a spectrum of dispensationalism through uh, covenantalism. And I'm yeah. curious, Jonty, in, in your limited experience studying progressive covenantalism, which you alluded to previously, uh, wh what do you like and what concerns you? Because I haven't studied it at all yet. But from what I've come to understand, it seems like a good thing for me as a Baptist to be able to say, yes, I'm still a covenantalist, but I don't need to sprinkle my baby. So, so tell me more about it. <laughs> so tell, in other words, tell Chase why he needs to become Pato Baptist. So, yeah, again, it's a lot. I mean, I read that, the, the massive Wellham Gentry book when it came out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kingdom Through Covenants, I think it was called. Yeah, yeah t 10 years ago, was it? I, I read it 10 years ago, so I'm, I'm hesitant to offer direct thoughts on that, stretching the memory banks that, that far. <laughs> and I, my, my impression, more broadly, my impression is that dispensationalism has um, 
broadened and broadened and broadened and tried to edge closer and closer and closer uh, to some form of covenantalism. I said earlier, Spurgeon, Spurgeon agrees with the ideas of the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. Um, the differences come on how you quite parse out the new covenant. So fundamentally, and this, this to be honest, this, it is covenants that pushed me into being a Peter Baptist rather than being a Peter Baptist that pushed me into being covenantal. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the big question, obviously, is we all know, we all agree, whether we're Spurgeon or um, Mike Horton or Marvel Robinson or whatever, we all agree that um, throughout the old... Testament under the old covenants, Abrahamic, Mosaic, we know that children were part of the covenant community. They were given the sign, or the sons were given the sign. They grew up under the law. They didn't choose to become Jews when they were 12. They, from birth, they couldn't eat pork or prawns. They wore the clothes they had to wear. They worshipped when they had to worship. They didn't choose to join. They were in unless they walked away, apostatized. Obviously, the question comes when the new covenant comes are children now out until they vote in? Um, now, I, all sorts of reasons will probably take us beyond this podcast. I think you look at the New Covenant and you see in its present dispensation, so until the Lord returns, the concept of being in covenant um, but not believing remains. In other words, you can be a covenant breaker, um, but you can only break something you're in. So you guys can't break my marriage covenant because you're not in it. Um, if you see covenant breakers in the New Testament... I think that shows that it cannot be the case. You have to be regenerate to be in covenant, um, which, you know, a, a sort of reformed Baptist would, would tend towards saying you, to be in covenant, you need to be regenerate because you have to have the Holy Spirit and look at those Jeremiah 31 promises. But I think if you see, you see in Hebrews, you see in, in the language of Peter, who talks about false teachers who were, um, uh, use the redeemed language, they were bought, they were redeemed, but are lost um, you've got to explain that somehow. Now, either you get rid of being reformed and say, well, they were genuinely saved and then they were lost, but I'm, I wouldn't be willing to do that. Or you need some category of people who are somehow described as connected to Christ, um, redeemed, but have still ended up lost. And I think from the Old Testament onwards, we see that covenant breaking fits that kind of that language. And so that, that I mean, you, you guys know this already, but the, 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 my my basic disagreement, I suppose, with the progressive covenantalism is that I think it, it still breaks the continuity between Old and New Testament, as we call it, too much and, and has a slightly over-realized eschatology, so expects too much of the church now. I don't think Jeremiah is saying that all people in covenant are born again yet. It will be in heaven. <laughs> but... um. As of this present era, I think you see covenant breakers, hypocrites, um, still exist in the, in the church. Um, and that's obviously leave aside all the verses that might suggest that children are in as well. We can talk about those with Pastor Michael another time. So there's plenty more you could say about the children. Question. Oh, we talk about them. We <laughs> talk about them. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Michael, whenever you explain it, you don't have a wonderful British accent. So it's, you know, true. <laughs> it's true. It's a huge disadvantage. Now he's convinced. That's what it's yeah. a huge disadvantage for me. Uh, well, uh, Jati, this has really been fantastic. Um, have really enjoyed this. Um, why don't you give a bit of a handoff to those listening? Uh, you know, where can they find more of your work? Uh, you know, what else have you done? What you know, what do you want to point people to as they listen to this podcast? 
I, I, I mean, rather than, I mean, I've written a few other things, but above that, really, if anyone's interested in, in Presbyterianism in England, I'd love to point you to, towards the, the IPC website, International Presbyterian Church. Um, if you look up on YouTube, there's a video we've just done about the, the planting work. So if anyone's interested in that, um, we cover your prayers, support in, in all sorts of ways, because getting that going again, it's been, it's exciting, but it's hard work. We're, we're really opportunity rich at the moment. In, in, in England and in IPC, um, men wanting to come into ministry, people wanting to plant, but we are resource massively poor because we're weirdos even in England. So um, we appreciate our fellowship with, with folk over the over the water in the PCA and OPC and EPC and all the rest of it um, and rely on the States a lot for resources and training. I've sent two guys to RTS in the last three years. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I'd love to see greater fellowship between IPC and, and the... Um, Brothers and sisters out in the in the states, yeah. Um, so yeah, check check out check out YouTube IPC Church Planting. That should get you somewhere near us. If you find the Indian Pentecostal Church, which sometimes people do when they put IPC, that's that's not us. <laughs> that's not you. <laughs> a lot of similarities though, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I'm brothers in the Lord, but um, yeah, right. different approaches. <laughs> oh, great, great. Well, thank you so much, Jonty, again. Get the book. Um, highly, highly recommend it. Um, and if you're interested in reform worship, Jonty also has a book on reform worship that uh, we just sent two copies to some listeners recently. Um, and so uh, definitely check that out as well. Uh, until next time, until we start our next book, which uh, is going to be Strange New World uh, by Carl Truman. Uh, until we start that, uh, I guess goodbye.